Good to see you guys this morning. I hope you guys do come on out to the community block party coming up. It's October 27th, Sunday evening, 5 to 7 p.m. Invite all your neighbors. The community is welcome here, uh, no matter where they're coming from. Hope they can come on out and be a part. This is just a way that we want to reach into the community with an extension of love and just say, hey, we're here. We want to know you and uh, have a good time together. So I hope you guys can come on out for that. Costumes, welcome, and, uh, and, and everything there. So I also want to bring your attention to the fact that our elders, every Sunday morning, we gather together and pray at about 8 o'clock in the morning over in the uh, prayer room over here. Uh, we would love for you to be a part of that. If you would like specific prayer for yourself or a family member or something like that, we would love to pray over you. If you'd like to submit a prayer request, uh, we've got some cards right out there, the next steps table out in the foyer, and uh, we take that time to really pray through, pray for the needs of the church. And so we do it Wednesday night, we do it in our elder meetings, we do it in our staff meetings, but uh, Sunday morning is, is probably more accessible for you. So <laughs> come on out to that. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. So uh, with that, we're going to continue in the Psalms this morning. And if you want to uh, stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Psalm 51. Um, I'm not going too risque here. Didn't wanna, I don't want to... Uh, freak some people out or anything like that, but just some of the content. Wanted to just make parents aware of uh, of what we're dealing with here. The, the the beginning inscription reads like this: It says, "A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba." Uh, so here's what he has to say after he's been called out and found in his sin. He says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions." Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again, O Lord. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open up my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You were not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you'll never despise. Do good design in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I invite you to pray with me. Father, I pray that you would do that uh, this morning, that you would create in us a clean heart. Father, our confession is that it's not just in the big things, it's in the small things and the day-to-day -day things. Lord, we would need to come to you and repent, uh, to confess our sin before you, confident that there's cleansing on the other end of it. So, Father, I pray that someone coming in here today that may be hiding like David was, uh, it may be secret, it may be unexposed at this point in time, Father, I pray that they would find healing and mercy on the other side of repentance today. Father, I pray that you would create a gathering of people here that are safe for the vulnerable. God, that we would repent early and often, uh, long before it ever gets to the point that it did in David's life. And so would you humble us this morning and would you make us a people that are receptive to your word? 
ready to be shaped by it all for the praise and for the glory of your name. God, we love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. I heard a little story a little while ago. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, I thought it illustrates a little bit what we're talking about this morning. But pastor was talking about a college student named Danny. Uh, I think he was in his second year at school. Things were going well. Uh, he just recently moved in with this girl named Allison, this beautiful girl, and he was nervous because his mom was coming in town that weekend to go see him, and uh, he, he, had, he just told him, hey, uh, mom, so I'm not living with the boys anymore. I've moved in with this girl, Allison, and uh, hey, but don't worry, we're just friends, right? We're just friends, and he's trying to assure her, hey, this is platonic, this is just, hey, it's responsible, we're saving money here, uh, it's just the right thing to do, and so like, we're just friends, I promise you, it's all friends. Of course, she's not really buying it or anything, and so the weekend comes and, and Danny and Allison, they have good old mom over to their home for dinner. Uh, they're having a great dinner and everything. And mom sees this watch on Allison's wrist and is like, Allison, I love your watch. Where did you get that watch? I, I, I've, got a, I've been wanting a watch just like it. Uh, I, I, can I see it? And she's like, yeah, sure. She takes it off and hands it to mom. And mom's looking at it, kind of um, just, just really excited about that watch. And they continue the rest of the night, have a good meal together and everything. A couple days later, uh, Allison comes to Danny and is like, hey, Danny, um, you know, I'm not saying your mom stole my watch or anything, but the fact is, you know, uh, I'm missing it. The whole thing's gone. She was the last one that was holding it that night at dinner. Do you mind asking her about it? And, of course, he's going, okay, yeah, this is a little awkward, but I'll reach out to her and see what's going on. And so uh, he texts her and he says, dear mom, uh, obviously I'm not saying that you stole the watch or anything like that, but the fact remains the watch is missing and you were the last one to have it. And so mom gets the text, and she sits on it a whole day and lets him stew in it for a little bit. And finally she texts him back and says, Dear Danny, obviously I'm not saying that you're sleeping with Allison, but the fact remains, had she been sleeping in her own bed like you assured me that she was, she would have found the watch on her pillow right where I left it. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that right? Some of you parents are like, yeah, I got that one written down. Kid go up to college, watch on pillow, that's how you do it. Um, <laughs> I love that story. What do you do when you've been caught and your sin has been exposed? All right, right what, what do you do when your sin is exposed and you've been caught in the deed? It's, it, it is the setting for Psalm 51. We read about it at the very beginning. The first line of the ESV reads, this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him and after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is, a this is in response to confrontation. I mean, you remember this whole story. This is the most famous uh, probably sin story in all of scripture right here, the sin of David and Bathsheba, what takes place there in Nathan's confrontation. I mean, you remember how it's going? This is, this is a, a high point in time for David's life. Uh, to this point in time, he was a, a consummate uh, believer. He was following God really, really well. There was God's favor on his life. He was now king over Israel. God had been giving him victory after victory after victory. Uh, he was walking and blessing at that time. Everything was going well until one day, um, all of his boys are off at battle and he's off at war and David's back home, kicking it, taking it a little bit easy one evening, and he's strolling around on his rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba from across the way, and he begins to look at her, and he begins to look a little bit longer. Finally, he decides, hey, uh, I want Bathsheba, and so he calls on her. He has her servant, his servants go and summon this woman to go be in the home of the king, and at that point in time, he forces himself upon her, and he rapes her. He is the king. He's the most powerful man on the planet at that time, and let's make no mistake, this was not a consensual affair as we talk about it many, many times today. She can't refuse the king, and she gets pregnant as a result of this. David has her husband killed, and then he marries her to cover the whole thing up, so he's not marrying her 
because he loves her and wants to, wants to treat her well and care for her. And so he's marrying her so that he can cover up his own mistakes because he's dear old David. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the king over Israel. He's the one with all the power and the authority in his life. The crazy thing about this story is that David almost gets away with it for almost an entire year. About a year into it, uh, we don't know exactly how Nathan gets word of what's going on. Maybe he's heard the rumors. Uh, maybe he just has open eyes and is not naive to what's going on in David's life. Um, and maybe the word of the Lord came to him. And all of a sudden, about a year into it, the baby has been born. Uh, David is married to Bathsheba at this point in time. And Nathan, the prophet, who kind of functions as his pastor at the time, comes to David and confronts him in the middle of his sin. And this is one of the most beautiful, incredible uh, confrontations of sin you've ever seen. If you're ever kind of wondering, okay, how do I confront my husband, my wife, my spouse, all these people? Like, like Nathan knows how to do it. So he calls David in and he says, okay, David, I want to tell you a story. There's two dudes. One guy's incredibly rich. The other's incredibly poor. Rich guy has everything you could possibly imagine in the world. He's got sheep like you wouldn't believe. He's got pastures full of sheep. He's got wealth. He's got riches, all these other kinds of things. Poor guy has nothing. The only thing he has is one sheep. And it gets really weird in the description. In verse 3, it says, the poor guy had nothing except one little lamb, which he loved so much that it grew up with him and his children. In fact, it would even eat his food and lie in his arms. The text says it was like a daughter to him. Um, pretty sure I graduated with that guy at AM. Um, Sorry, I'm an ag, I can do those jokes. But anyway, um, so the rich man has one of his friends in town. And he calls him in and he decides, uh, I'm going to host this guy, but the rich man doesn't want to part with any of his sheep. And so what he does is he steals the sheep from the poor man, slaughters that sheep, and he feeds it to his own guest. And I love how the, the outrage in verse 5, this is 2 Samuel chapter 12 if you wanted to follow up. But I love David's outrage as he's hearing this story. It says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no compassion on that man. And then comes one of the greatest mic drop moments in all of scripture. Nathan just looks at David and he says, David, you are that man. You are that man. In other words, it's kind of like the watch is on Allison's pillow. And you can just imagine that at that point in time, David's heart just sinks. Because this thing that he'd gotten away, he, he thought he had gotten away with, he's been caught. The whole thing's been exposed. You can imagine, like, you can probably hear a pin drop. And at that point in time, Nathan looks at him and he says, David, like, the Lord has given you everything. You're not just that wealthy, rich man that has sheep. Like the Lord's giving you this kingdom. The Lord's giving you an anointing upon your life. The Lord's giving you power to shepherd and to care for, not to crush and to destroy. The Lord has given you responsibility. The Lord has given you favor. He has given you victory after victory after victory. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And at that point in time, David's understanding the gravity of what he's done and what he's brought into, the brokenness of the situation. And he simply looks at Nathan, and he just looks, I can imagine he's just looking down, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no explanations. There's no excuses. There's no back-talking. There's no minimization. There's no blame-shifting, changing the subject. None of those other kinds of things. He just weeps, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Church, I don't know if you've ever been there before where maybe you've been caught in the middle of something or maybe your sin has just finally come to the surface, but Psalm 51 is exactly how to respond after you fall. It's a picture of repentance. It's a word we talk about 
a lot, but it's a picture of repentance and what has to come next. Otherwise, your sin will just keep growing and growing and growing inside of you. And vulnerable people like Bathsheba and Uriah continue, will continue to be abused while everyone else is silent around them. So it should have taken place in the very beginning, as soon as David sensed that there's lust that's going on inside of his heart. One commentator put it like this, and the commentator said, had repentance been a lifestyle for David, rather than a last resort, none of this would have taken place. Bathsheba would not have been raped. Uriah would not have been murdered. Innocent soldiers would not have been killed. And David's family would not have been torn apart as a result. But here we are, lives literally ruined. Because repentance for David was a last resort rather than a lifestyle. Church, can you imagine for just a moment how different your life might be had repentance been a lifestyle for you rather than a last resort? I mean, just think about your marriage for just a moment. Can you imagine how different your marriage might be today had year one, those cries that you you were crying out to your spouse, had they been taken seriously and met with compassion, contrition, remorse, sadness, And it was received in such a way that actually led to repentance and not an empty apology that meant nothing. Can you imagine where your marriage would be had those cries not fallen on deaf ears but ready and receptive ears that were saying, you know what, I want to listen and I want to listen with contrition and I want to learn from the brokenness that's going on here and I want to change inside of my life that you may be lifted up and that God may be glorified in the process. Can you imagine for a second had your spouse done that for you? Can you imagine for a second, had that been your default and that's what you've done for your spouse? Maybe it's not a spouse. Maybe this is a a parent or someone who hurt you when you were really, really young. Can you imagine for a moment that that person who deeply wounded you on their own admission came to you and owned the entirety of what was said or what was done? And they did it with contrition and sadness and remorse inside of their heart. And they acknowledged the sins which they did with no other, no other things said. They owned every bit of it. And you actually believe that it was in such a way that would lead to a change of life. Can you imagine how healing that would be for you? If you heard those words you longed for from your father, from your mother, from your sister, your brother, your grandparent, the one who loved you and was supposed to protect you, that you've longed for your entire life, can you imagine the healing that would take place? Can you imagine, uh, can you imagine if your porn addiction was immediately cut off and never had a chance to grow into the hardness of heart which you live through every single day when you're trying to love the real thing at home? Or it didn't have a chance to turn into the affair that actually took place or God forbid the sexual assault, which you're still trying to recover from today. Can you imagine if the hatred, the anger inside of your heart, which you thought about, can you imagine if that was cut off in your mind and in your heart long before it ever had a chance to make its way out of your mouth and into your life to crush the people you're supposed to care for and love? Can you imagine uh, the healing that would take place throughout the universal church if church leaders cared more about repentance than they did cover up? telling you, we would live in a different world. You would have a different marriage. You would have different relationships with the people that you love and care for. The church would be a beautiful place and Gen Z would not be fleeing at the rate that they are fleeing if we would simply embrace this lifestyle of repentance which we see in Psalm 51. I wanna jump into that. I wanna talk not just about repenting when all hell's broken loose and your life has been destroyed, but You and I developing a lifestyle of repentance, which is a daily thing whereby we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, create in me a clean heart, oh God, renew this right spirit in me right now, today, long before it ever gets to the point that it did for David. 
There's three C's of repentance I want to talk about today. Um, contrition, confession, and change. Those are the three C's of repentance. Contrition, confession, and change, right? They all work together. The first two work hand in hand. Uh, it's confession in such a way that expresses contrition and genuine more remorse in such a way that communicates a genuine desire to change. That's what repentance is, church. Like repentance is all three of those things. It, repentance literally means to change your mind about the way that you think, about the things that you think in such a way that it changes your life too. It's thinking change which leads to life change. Right, it's not just one or the other, it's the entire thing. So all three of these things, contrition, confession, and change, they all have gotta go hand in hand. So if any one of those threes are missing, then what you may be trying to do or trying to communicate, it may look a lot like repentance, it may sound a lot like repentance, but make no mistake, church, it ain't repentance. All three of these things have got to be here if we're gonna play the real game of repentance and not just give it lip service in our life. Church, notice Psalm 51, verse one. Here's what he says. Here's how the whole thing begins. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin. That's what it is. It's sin. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't inconsequential. It wasn't somebody else's fault, it's my sin. Wash me from my sin, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Church, like that's what it sounds like to confess with contrition. That's what a confession sounds like that has honest contrition in, behind those words. It's genuine brokenness. Have mercy on me, oh God. Wash me and cleanse me from the inside so that what takes place on the outside may be beautiful and safe for the vulnerable. Notice what he's not saying right here, church. Notice what you're never gonna hear in these psalms. He's not doing the obligatory, I'm sorry that you feel that way for the things that I've done to you. He's not saying the obligatory, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry that you feel hurt by my actions. I'm sorry that you feel like you've been wronged. He's not doing that. He's not saying, Lord, if there's anything here that I've done to offend you, then you know what, I'm really sorry about that. I mean, I couldn't imagine what the specifics might be of that thing, but like, if there's generally anything that I've done to offend you, like he's not being general about it, church. He's being specifically, these are my sins. And these aren't my, these aren't my accidents. These are the things that I've willfully done to bring harm, not only to your name, but to the people that are around me. He's owning the entirety of the thing. He's not, here it is, church, he's not rationalizing or minimizing what he's done like so many in power do today, right? He's not sitting there going, okay, Lord, uh, you know how much worse it really could have been? You know how normative this kind of behavior is for a lot of other kings in other lands? Like, you know how normal it is to take and to abuse people who are vulnerable when you have the kind of power that I have? He's not rationalizing or minimizing it in any other way. He's not saying, hey, that's just who I am. God, I'm an affectionate guy. It's just what I do. It was an accident. It was a one-time thing. Come on. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. Boys will be boys. It's what we do. He's not blame shifting and he's not, putting the, he's not putting the onus on Bathsheba. He's not saying things like, you know what? She should have been wearing better clothes that day that she was bathing when I was spying on her and invading her privacy. He's not blame shifting and saying, hey, you know what? It was so-and-so's fault. It was my servants. They put it in my ear. It was Bathsheba's fault. She wasn't dressed appropriately. There should have been a better wall or something there. Church, like there's genuine sorrow that is coming with this confession. Church, like it's what contrition is. 
It's the definition of contrition. It's, it is an expression of genuine remorse that understands the full gravity of what you have brought in, the brokenness, the sin, the evil which you have brought into a certain situation, and it is done in such a way that expresses a genuine desire to change, that that kind of evil will not be perpetrated again. It will not be developed. It will not be, um, it will not be dismissed. We won't be silent about it. We won't let it continue to go on and on and on. There's genuine contrition going on in this confession. So church, here it is. If your confession, whether it's to the Lord and you're repenting first and foremost to him or to a loved one, a spouse, a friend, a neighbor, a family member or something like that, if it sounds anything like blame shifting or minimization or, hey, I'm just sorry that you feel that way or things like that, church, it's not repentance. It may look a lot like repentance and it may sound a lot like repentance. And you may be trying to accomplish something, but I promise you, you're not trying to accomplish repentance. So if that's how it typically goes for you, then it might explain why there's so little victory in your life spiritually and so much damage in your life relationally. Church, don't miss the contrition that's here in this psalm. He's throwing himself on the mercy of God, saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve grace and compassion from you. I don't deserve this. I need, I need mercy. I need what I don't deserve I'm begging for God, don't give me what I deserve. The picture here, I'm tapping out. Have mercy. You play that game, mercy? I can't take any more, God. Have mercy on me. Have mercy. And I want you to notice, church, he expects to receive mercy. It's the reason he's able to repent so freely before God. I hope you don't miss it because this is the key to your ability to repent as a lifestyle rather than a last resort. He understands that there is mercy on the other side of this repentance. So what he says in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your what? Your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. In other words, what he's saying is like, that's who I know you are. This is what's true of your character. You are abundant in mercy. You are steadfast in love. You are full of grace. You are full of compassion. You are full of kindness. Church, like if repentance is ever going to become a lifestyle for us, then you have to know that there's mercy on the other side of that repentance. Remember, I think I've told you guys this before. I remember the first time Caleb accidentally broke something kind of big. He was probably around two. I think we were at Crossroads, if I remember right. Uh, Diner, that's our place to go. We love that place. Um, he got it from his chair somewhere a little after two years old. He backed up accidentally into one of these trays, knocked over a bunch of plates and glasses and stuff like that. Loud thing. It's one of those things that everybody in the restaurant hears at the time. And he just stood there frozen. And I'm not kidding you. My son, like, he, he, he ran and hid underneath the table we were sitting at. And he just got under there and he just starts crying. Because that's what you do when your sin has been exposed. When you bring damage into a situation, our first and only natural inclination is to run and hide because we think that there's condemnation and we think that there's greater and greater and greater punishment on the other side. I cannot come clean. How in the world can anybody love me if this is what I brought into the situation? We grabbed little Caleb, we brought him up and we said, buddy, there's no reason to be crying. We love you no matter what. This is an accident. You weren't behaving irresponsibly. You weren't doing anything you shouldn't have been doing. Like, we know who you are. That's not what, you're okay. Like, you're, this is grace. Like, we're okay. Like, you're going to learn from this. You're going to pay attention in the future. It's okay. Like, there's mercy here on this thing. About a few months back, he's in the kitchen, and, and about six years old now, about four years have passed. He drops a glass, accidentally shatters a glass. First thing he does is he runs into me, says, Daddy, I accidentally broke a glass. I wasn't messing around. I just slipped out of my hand. I'm so sorry. 
a massive difference between two-year-old Caleb and six-year-old Caleb. Two-year-old Caleb is terrified and hiding in fear. Six-year-old Caleb knows that there is mercy on the other side of this repentance, and so he comes to his father, and he says, Father, would you come and forgive me for the accident that I've done, the thing that I've done? Church, you will not develop a lifestyle of repentance unless you know that there is a mercy on the other side of that repentance, which there is. It's who God is. He is steadfast in love. He is abundant in mercy in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has now set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, be assured there is mercy on the other side of repentance. It's why David is able to come to him so freely and ask in the middle of this horrific thing that he's done to destroy Bathsheba, Uriah, and so many other families. And so he comes and and I love this. He knows in verse 16, he knows that, um, you know what, mercy is not something you can earn. And he knows that in verse 16. So he says, I'm, I'm just not even going to try to earn your mercy. I can't pay it back. It's not a thing I can purchase through my good deeds. And he says in verse 16, he says, you won't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, I'm not coming to you with more religious activity in order to earn your mercy. You understand this, church? Like he understands, hey, uh, I know that you're not asking for a thousand Hail Marys, a hundred lit candles. I know that you're not asking me to, hey, I'm finally going to go volunteer for the parking team or the kids ministry. And I'm going to show up every single week rather than just 26 out of 52 or less than that, whatever. Right? Like I, he's, he knows that you cannot purchase mercy. And so he's saying, hey, I'm not going to try to come and offer you these false religious practices and stuff like that because here it is. Why? Verse 17, for the sacrifices of God, they are a broken spirit. They're a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so that's exactly how David comes. He confesses everything with contrition. Even his blood guiltiness in verse 14, he says, yeah, I, I, I killed a man. I killed a man. I sent him to his death. He's not hiding from him. He's not saying, hey, you know what? I didn't know he was going to be passing. I didn't know he was going to die on the front lines of the war. I, he owns it. And he then prays for the ability to change, verse 10. God created me a clean heart, oh God, and renew this right spirit in me. In other words, Father, like I need change. This, what I'm so comfortable with right now, it cannot continue to persist. My, the things that I've become comfortable with inside, it has led to destruction. It has led to rape. It has led to victimization. It has led to cover-up. It has brought massive, massive pain, evil, and torment torment the people that I'm called to love. And so he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. I understand that my heart has not been right in a really, really, really long time. God, would you wash me clean? Would you get rid of all the sin, the destruction that is inside of me, God, that I would not be a perpetrator of evil any longer? Church, there's a question that I've been wrestling with all week long. Why is repentance so difficult to do? I mean, contrition, confession, and change. Contrition, confession, and change. We love the idea of repentance as long as we're applying it to someone who's been a perpetrator against me, right? Like, they need to repent. They need to change. My spouse, boy, they need to listen to that message again. My gosh, come on, I'm going to send that to them, passive-aggressive. You need to really listen to this one, right? Like, we love this message when it has nothing to do with what I've done. Why in the world is repentance so difficult for us to grab hold of? There's a couple reasons I can think of. Number one is that it could be the fact that we simply do not care very much for the one who's been offended. It may be the fact that we give a lot more lip service to the people we love and to the priorities in our life than what we actually love the most in our life. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so 
My sin's against God. He's offended by what I was thinking. He's offended by the things I was doing. He's God. Come on. He spoke the world into existence. I mean, grace is what he does. What's the big deal? I mean, who, who am I actually hurting here? Who's actually hurting and in pain by the things that I've done? Church, like, what does that kind of attitude say about what you really value, who you really value most? It says, what I value most is me and maybe other people around me. It has nothing to do with the Lord. By the way, this is the opposite response that you hear from David in this psalm in verse 4. He says, here's what David says. He says, for I know my transgressions, and I know that my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And it's, it's, not that he's, it's not that he doesn't care about others, and it's not that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and so many other people along the way. Like, he understands that, but what David is saying, he's, he understands that my sin, first and foremost, is always an offense against God. It is an assault on the glory of God. It is an assault on image bearers of God. So it is primarily a sin against God and secondarily a sin against other people. He also understands that the only way to really care for other people long term is to develop this lifestyle of repentance, which only comes through him. So when I'm healed and cleansed vertically with the Father, when he brings that cleansing deep inside of me, then I'm set free, and, and uh, then I'm set free to actually horizontally love the people that are there in my life. And so that's one of the options that are there. It could be the fact that, you know what, I'm not repenting of very many things, because honestly, I don't really care that, that I've offended God. I mean, he's a big boy, he can get over it. And that may be one of the big things that's right there, number one. The other option may be that we may not really believe that the small things need to change. We may not really believe that the small things are that bad. We've created these paradigms a lot of times and said, hey, okay, here are the really, really big things over here. What David did, kind of a big deal. I'm going to repent from that. But what was going on in my mind, what was going on in my heart while I was walking around on that rooftop that evening, it's not a big deal. In fact, like, who's ever going to know about it unless I choose to talk about it? No one's going to know what's going on in my mind. Like, no one's going to know what's going on deep inside of my soul. I can keep this a secret my entire life. And it could be the fact that we don't believe that those small things, those hidden things, those private sins that are deep inside of our heart and our mind, we may not believe that they actually need to change. You know, want to know what's really ironic about that? The reason that we think that is because the small things really, really are that bad. Right? Like the reason we think like that is because what's going on in here, it really is that crippling. It's what we talk about all the stinking time in Hebrews 3.13 when he says, let us encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of us are going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. Church, like that's how sin works. It is a numbing effect. It continues to numb you to the things of God to the point that your sin just keeps building and building and building until it actually destroys someone or something that you love and we're called to protect. I mean, church, don't miss the fact that this entire story began with a little bit of lust. I mean, this entire story began with David believing something that many of us believe today that you can look as long as you don't touch. I mean, David's just going along with what all the other boys do. It's what we do. I mean, you can look as long as you don't touch. It's private. It's hidden. It doesn't really mean anything, right? So it's exactly what David did. He started looking. And he kept looking a little bit longer. And he kept looking a little bit longer. And then he got the binoculars. And then he went back at night and he started thinking about it in his bed. And it went on over and over again to the point where finally that tiny little lust, which was hidden and secret inside of his heart, it conceived and it gave way to abuse and adultery and what took place. And of course, church, like we understand that that's not the full extent of what happened, right? It didn't end right there because the adultery, it led to an unwanted pregnancy, which led to a massive cover-up. 
and lies and deceit, which led to a giant plot to get Uriah drunk so that he could trick him into sleeping with his wife and, hey, that baby is his. That didn't work. So there's another lying plot to come and to have Uriah killed. That one actually did work. In the meantime, many other innocent soldiers lost their life along the process. That caused his family to literally implode from the inside out. His daughter ends up getting raped by one of his sons. Then that son is killed by the other son who's so angry about that whole thing. Um, Then the remaining son leads this rebellion against dear old David, his dad, and that leads to the death death of the other son. Church, I don't know how else to describe this except like what we're seeing in David's life as a result of this whole thing is massive, massive destruction. Like it's not insignificant. And what stays hidden for a season doesn't always stay hidden for a season. It grows and it, it, it grows and it grows. Even when David confesses his sin to Nathan, Nathan's like, fantastic, David. You confess your sin. You're repentant right now. That's wonderful. The Lord's giving you mercy. You're not going to die as a result of that. But here's the deal. David, you still can't unsin. You don't get that back. You still can't unsin. Like, like Bathsheba was still violated by you, a man of God who was supposed to care for her and to protect her, to be a shepherd. Like, uh, she was still violated by you. You preyed on her like she was a worthless piece of meat. And she's going to have that with her for the rest of her days. It's fantastic that you're repentant right now. But that damage is still there. Like Uriah is still dead. He didn't come back to life because you're repentant right now. Like Uriah is still dead. There's innocent soldiers that are still dead. There's families that are still grieving. There's children that are never going to have a father. And Bathsheba is still going to have a baby. And you're still going to have a secondary side family on the, along the way. Like all of that stuff is still there, church. Like even though there's mercy, you still can't unsin. Like trust is not immediately restored in some of the things that we do. There's damage there. There's residual consequences that continue to linger for a really, really, really long time. Your kids are not immediately healed. It matters to them. Your spouse doesn't immediately forget. Like forgive and forget, that's not a real thing. You don't forget some things. Your mind is not immediately renewed, church, like there's no such thing as insignificant private secret sin. Years ago, there was a study that came out by a bunch of uh, non-Christian scientists. And by the way, I love reading all these things because when non-Christian scientists and people like that, they, they, when they validate what Scripture's been saying for a long time, like, you should pay attention to that, right? Like, this isn't even just a slanted, hey, here's what the Bible says. Like, non-Christian scientists are saying the exact same thing. This comes from a book called Hooked. And uh, they said this. It said the individual, oh, they wrote this book and they did this study to be able to uh, determine the effects of the brain that a lot of sexual partners and even pornography addictions and stuff create, creates on the brain. And here's what one of them said. It says, the individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner, either physically or in their own mind, okay, physically or in their own mind through lust and porn addiction, is causing the brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts that sexual pattern as normal, which damages their ability to bond to another person in a committed relationship. You ever heard about casual sex before? All right, it's what, it's what so many in young adult life especially, um, it's what we shoot for, we aim for. We want to be able to do it in such a way that keeps it casual. It doesn't really mean anything. There's no real bonds. It doesn't even matter anymore. The problem with casual sex is that it works. The problem with casual sex is that it, it's exactly how it works. And it can get to the point where it becomes so normative that it cripples your ability to connect with the one person in a committed relationship with that you're trying to connect with for the rest of your life. That's exactly what they're saying right here. The problem with it is that it continues to work. They go on and they talk about how porn addiction is the thing that is leading to more ED in 20-year-old men than anything else. I don't, I'm not a doctor. Um, like 20-year-old men shouldn't be dealing with that problem. 
I'm just going to go out on a limb and just say that. I think that's probably true. They went on and they said in men and women, they talked about how it is leading, it is, uh, they talked about how it's leading to all kinds of other things like ADHD, social anxiety. In other words, like kids aren't able to communicate anymore. They're not able to have a real life relationship that communicates one anymore. Um, they talk about it leads to depression, concentration problems, and OCD. Church, it's exactly what David's playing with. It's exactly what he's convincing himself in his mind. Hey, it's no big deal. It's just in here. It's not hurt. Who am I hurting? Who am I hurting? Like, what's the damage that's coming from this whole thing? Hey, he, he, he thinks it's a game. He's not even thinking about repentance when it's all in his head. And it's a small thing at that point in time. Listening to a TED Talk by a sociologist named Gary Miller said, Pornography trains your heart and your mind to objectify the opposite sex, which prohibits you from taking into consideration another person's humanity and hurts your ability to interact with other people on a normal human level. Church, that's what happens. Like, it teaches you to stop seeing people and to start seeing objects that exist for your own gratification. By the way, it's exactly what happens with David. And you see it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's a scene where he calls for a servant when he's about to call for Bathsheba, but he calls a servant and is like, hey, servant, uh, who's that woman over there? Who's that? And you remember what the servant said? The servant says, uh, you mean Bathsheba? She's got a name, David. She's got a name. You mean Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? You remember that? In other words, like, she's not yours to take, David. She's not yours. Like, she's not, she's a, she's not a toy for you to play with. So she's a human being. She's Eliam's daughter. She's someone's wife. She's made in the image of God. She's a child of God. Church, like, when we stop seeing people as God sees people, like, all bets are off. It's how genocide starts. Take Rwanda in 1994. You want to know how a million people can be killed in a 100-day period? Like, don't see them as human beings. For 100 days prior to the launch of the genocide, there was a massive radio campaign that were, that were teaching everybody to call all Tutsis that were there, Hutus versus Tutsis. The Tutsis were called cockroaches for over 100 days prior to the launch of the genocide. You want to know how you get comfortable killing other human beings? Think of it as stepping on cockroaches. They're not human. They're not people. They're not made in the image of God. They're objects that are getting in the way of my course of happiness, church. Like how in the world was the slave trade ever okay? They're three-fifths of a human being. They're not image bearers of God. They're not equal to white people. They're not equal to these people over here. Like how in the world, church, I'm telling you, like when, when people cease to be people, all bets are off. Last week I went to a conference called the Care Now Conference. It was out of the Gaylord Texan. Church, the entire Gaylord Texan um, is filled with people dealing, going to this conference that deals with abuse in the church. Tell me why thousands and thousands and thousands of people want to come to a conference about abuse in this place, which should be safe for the most vulnerable in the world. Like how in the world do we sit there and listen to victim story after story after story taking place even within the church, trusted volunteer leaders, trusted pastors, people that were there like David, given authority, given power to nurture and protect, and it took a, took a, that abused them in the process. Church, I'm telling you, like when one in five women, one in 71 men, men will be raped at some point in their lives. Like it's, it's not secret, it's not nothing it's not hidden sin that's going on, right? It, it, these things grow. They become something else. One in three women, one in six men experience some form of physical sexual violence in their lifetime. It's not a tiny, tiny minority. It's here in the room. 51% of female victims report being raped by an intimate partner, meaning someone that they love. 
that they trust, that they've invited into this relationship that was supposed to care for them, love them, and protect them. Another 41% report that it was an acquaintance, someone that they knew that decided to take advantage of them. 91% of rape and sexual assault victims are female, 9% are male. Church, I'm telling you, like when we stop seeing people as people, all bets are off. It's not harmless. It's not harmless. There's no such thing as insignificant, secret, private, no big deal kind of sin. The whole thing, the reason we have Psalm 51, the reason that there's division in the kingdom and brokenness all throughout David's family, Bathsheba, Uriah, is because he began to lust and he didn't think that repentance was appropriate at that point in time. Repentance comes later on instead of being a lifestyle. On Wednesday this past week, there was a story in the news about a synagogue being bombed in Germany on Yom Kippur, which is Judaism's uh, most holy day of the year. I don't know if you guys read this story or not, but two people were killed. A synagogue was destroyed and blown up. The attacker was heard to say, the root of all problem are the Jews. Church, you don't get to that, and you don't get to any other kind of violence without first fostering hatred in your heart. Thinking about it, letting it ruminate over and over and over again without being checked and bringing it to the Lord in repentance. You don't get to crippling malicious gossip in junior high, on social media, in high school, in ways that destroy young women and young girls and young boys at that same time. Like you don't get to that kind of crippling malicious gossip without, be, without being okay uh, with, with jealousy and hatred going on inside of your heart, without unrepentant jealousy living inside of your heart. Like you don't start cheating at work and stealing without unrepentant envy and greed living inside your heart. You don't get to a cold, religious but distant, uncommitted relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ without unrepentance being your lifestyle choice. Even with David, church, like it's not just lust that's going on there. Like it's not just the thing we talk about a lot today. Like what, what, what else is crippling him inside? This is pride, right? This is pride. This is a powerful man who's been given a lot, who has a strong platform that has a lot going for him. It's success that made him start thinking, hey, you know what? Look at all this kingdom. I know that God gave it to me, but you know what? It's kind of mine. I did this. Look how awesome this is. It's unrepentant pride and success that begins deceiving him inside and makes him start to think, hey, you know what? Um, I think I deserve a little bit more than what's mine. It's just sex. It's no big deal. I can take what may not be mine because of look what all I've done. So he abuses his power, and he takes advantage of the vulnerable like many, many, many people who are in power still do to this day. But church, it's how sin works. It just builds, and it builds, and it builds until the mouth speaks, and the body responds to that which already fills your heart. And so David repents, and Psalm 51 is beautiful. He gets mercy. Because it's who God is. He's steadfast in love. He's abundant in mercy. But I think what he's really showing us is that we have got to develop a lifestyle of repentance. Otherwise, there's going to be more Bathshebas. There's going to be more Uriahs. There's going to be more destruction. But even first and foremost, there's going to be more distance between us and the God we are called to love. Church, we're fantastic at faking repentance. We like it. We'll take that message. We'll send it to our friends that need to repent. We're fantastic at faking repentance, but here it is, church. Like when your repentance does not have the three C's, contrition, confession, and change. Make no mistake, it is just a cover-up 
for devastating sin, which keeps building and building and building until it hardens you to the things of God and crushes the vulnerable who are around you. I'm going to end with this image that it's been on my mind all week long, and I think it kind of captures a little bit of what we're talking about. But I was just reminded all week long of, I, I think it was my sophomore year in college at Texas A&M, uh, just finished up the first year. We lived that first year off campus in this home, and uh, I took off for the summer. And we were coming back in August to start a brand new semester. I'd moved out, and so I had a new home, but I still had some of my old stuff at that old home. My old previous roommates were still living there throughout the summer, but I'd taken off. And so uh, it's the beginning of August. I show up with my best friend at this house. We pull up to the front of the house, and it's really weird because the whole yard is overgrown. I mean, weeds are like up to my chest here. It's, it's crazy. And we get out of the car, and we, we notice this stench where, like, the whole street just smells like funk. It's terrible. I mean, we're like, what is that? And we're, like, looking around. We're like, what is, what, is, what is that smell? And so we get closer to the house. Closer to the house we get, we can do, it's just worse and worse and worse. And we go around in the backyard, and we open up the gate, and, and literally the grass is up top here, and the stench is just horrific. And we start freaking out a little bit right there. We're kind of going, okay, uh, this is an abnormal smell. Like, we're, we're college students. We smell already, but um, uh, this is abnormal. And we're like, what are we going to find here in this grass? What are we going to find in the, are we about to find a body or something? And we're freaking out a little bit. And so we finally kind of go over to the house, and there's a long sliding glass door, and we open it up, and I walk in. And I'm not kidding you. As soon as I walk into this house, it's like a wall of fog inside this house. I walk in, and it hits me, and just the stench is just, it's the worst I've ever smelled. I immediately kind of repulsed and just ran back out. We took off our shirts and had to wet them all and kind of cover our faces so we could breathe a little bit from this thing. And... Um, and we're going, this is, this is the most disgusting thing you can possibly imagine. And so we took turns, and we finally we wrapped our face, and I would run in the house, and I'd run around, be like, okay, wh what is this thing? And then I'd run back out, get a breath of fresh air. He'd run in, and we did that a number of times. Finally, I went into the kitchen. I ran in there, and uh, I opened up the fridge. And uh, I opened up the fridge, and the entire inside of the fridge is completely black, and black, not just black, but like black fuzzy. And, uh, and, and the whole thing is just crawling with maggots. And um, of course, it just immediately just repulsed. It just like covered up, ran out. And it took a number of minutes to be able to recover from that one. And we came back out. And finally, we ran in. And I had to get a couch. I had to get some clothes that I left in there. I had to get my mattress and pillow and stuff like that. And of course, I bring it out. And I'm like, hey, we got Febreze. This is good. Um, of course, quickly realized, I was like, no, Febreze can't even save that one. Uh, and Febreze is pretty powerful stuff. So uh, um, we came back out, and we're like, oh, my gosh, this is horrific. And um, about a week later, we come back and want to see how the old roommates are doing and everything. And I walk into the house, and the old roommates, they, it's so funny, they got a little spray bottle of Lysol and some little wipes. And they're just out there just kind of wiping down the counters, wiping down the fridge. And you can still smell the stink, like, all over the place. It's horrific. Uh, they went to every dollar store in College Station, bought all these scented candles. And so it was awesome. It was this beautiful smell of like fresh vanilla and rotten maggots, um, like all throughout the house. And they came in and, and they tried to try to clean up the whole thing themselves. And they tried to um, try to overcome this mess and everything else. And about a week it goes by and they finally realized there's no saving this thing. They had to completely throw out the fridge, bring it down to the street for bulk trash. They had to throw away pretty much all of their furniture. All the furniture was completely ruined. The mattresses that were in there, they had to rip out drywall and do brand new walls and everything inside the house. They had to rip out all the carpet and they had to completely do, 
do a complete remodel inside the house because everything was so terrible. Church, all that happened was that they stopped paying attention to what was inside the fridge. Like all they did was just stop paying attention to what was growing inside the fridge. They stopped cleaning it. The electricity was cut off all summer long in Texas heat. They stopped paying attention. They thought it was no big deal. They thought it was small. They thought it was private. They didn't think it would become of anything in there, but it just kept growing, and it just kept growing, and it just kept growing. Church, all they had to do was take care of the fridge a little bit every single day. It's what David teaches us to do here in this psalm. And he gives us this little prayer that we can hold on to and that we can come back to every single day when we come before the Lord in honesty and we simply say, God, would you just create in me a clean heart, oh God? Would you renew this right spirit which is within me? Church, the beauty of this is just like as David is understanding that there is there is mercy on the other side of repentance. Jesus comes and he assures us that there is mercy on the other side of repentance. He has taken care of this whole thing. He has given us brand new clean hearts in the new covenant. He has promised that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And church, some of us, we need that cleansing today. Lest we continue, lest it continue to grow, lest our hearts continue to be completely totally and completely numb to the things of God in all the ways of our life. So I want to invite you, I want to invite you to pray with me right now.